Tune in to hear a conversation with Dr. Michael Finca, professor and researcher on retirement satisfaction, spending, and investing. Listen to insights and evidence on longevity, how to combat inflation, why Social Security is such a good deal, and why the news is so bad for retirees in 2022, and what you can do about it. That and more on this next series on Retire Smarter. So today on Retire Smarter and for the next few episodes, uh, we are very lucky and uh, a great deal of gratitude to have uh, Professor Dr. Michael Finca, who is the Frank M. Angle Chair of Economic Security Research. Economic Security Research, that sounds awesome, uh, at the American College of Financial Services. Uh, Michael, welcome to Retire Smarter. Very happy to have you. Economic Security Research. Uh, so what does all that entail exactly? Wow. Um so I do a lot of research on retirement. That's my main subject. But I also do research on issues that are rela- related to general retirement security. So um, are people saving enough for retirement? What are they investing in when they invest for retirement? When they get to retirement, what is the right way to take money out of their savings to create a lifestyle? And what actually makes people happy in retirement? Um, so what I'm interested in is is how people use money to be happier, uh, which I think is is the goal of money. A lot of people think that the goal is just to have more, but honestly, it's just green paper. It's just numbers on a computer screen. The real goal is to actually live better. Living better. That's great. So um, I, I recently learned that uh, you had an interesting uh, foray into your current uh, professional endeavors. So you actually spent your first a uh, decade or so of your career as a food consumption researcher. Is that correct? That is correct. So I studied what motivated people to eat healthy foods. Now, when you eat a healthy food, um, when you go to, let's say, a fast food restaurant for lunch and you see that there's Baconators and then there's, you know, chicken sandwiches that, are, that don't, don't taste quite as good. What, what makes someone choose the grilled chicken sandwich instead of the Baconator? And I had found a lot of evidence that higher income people, and especially people who save more money, tended to eat healthier diets. So I wanted to learn more about finance theory so that I could understand why there was this correlation between healthy eating and saving money. And what I found was that, first of all, I found that investment theory was was fascinating. Uh, I took a PhD class in investments. and ended up getting a PhD in finance because I was so interested in the topic of investments. But I continue to do research that really is related to this human aspect of saving and investing. So what motivates people to invest? And very often, how people become wealthy over time is is a combination of motivation. They, they want to live better in the future. It's the same thing that motivates us to eat the healthier sandwich at lunch. We want to live better in the future but also by accident. And if, if you look at the wealth data in the United States, you see that most people build wealth by accident, um, simply because they decided to save more in their 401k plan, or they built a business and they just continue to build the business over time. They put their profits back in the business, it grew. Um, or a home, you know, we keep paying our mortgage and by accident over the next 30 years, now we finally paid off our house and we have wealth in our home. So there's really two sources of wealth in the United States. One is 
purposeful choice and the other is by accident. But I think that's one of the biggest things that a financial advisor provides is the opportunity to sit down and think about what you want in the future and then make some of these automated choices that will allow you to get there because, you know, who wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I really need to save more money in my 401k. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not not many um you know what you just shared uh reminds me of the old uh fabled marshmallow test uh would you say that that's somewhat in alignment with that uh that first part the non-luck part yeah so let, let's talk for a moment about the marshmallow test so um there was a, a scientist walter michelle who put kids in a room and offered them a marshmallow and said that if you can wait five minutes, I'll come back and give you two marshmallows. And so I, I don't know if you've never seen those videos uh, on YouTube, watch the videos of the kids struggling for five minutes to <laughs> def- de- defer gratification, to wait so that they can get two marshmallows. You know, some kids are fine. They're very disciplined. Other kids have developed skills that allow them to defer gratification, even though they are have they have a difficult time resisting temptation. So some kids will just you know put their chair in the corner of the room and stare at the wall. Uh, other kids will like lick the marshmallow, but they won't <laughs> eat it. Uh, and what you're seeing is you know by by the kid. First of all, the kid who turns their chair around and stares at the wall that is it's it's like tying yourself to the mast it's it's recognizing that you have a problem with succumbing to temptation and then avoiding opportunities that are going to force you to actively choose to resist those temptations i think you know so much of life is habits and developing a process for avoiding these types of temptations. And I think especially when it comes to saving and spending, we're so much better off if we, first of all, are conscious. We're actually using a different part of our brain, our prefrontal cortex, when we're making decisions about the future. And so when you sit down with a financial advisor and you're say, they ask you, what are your, your future financial goals? You're actually using a different part of your brain than you use to make financial decisions very often during the course of the day. So you're projecting, you're imagining what your life is going to be like in the future. And you're not using those emotional parts of your brain. And the great example of this is a snooze button. So uh, the night before we go to sleep, we have an idea of what the optimal time to wake up will be the next morning. So we're actually, again, we're projecting, we're using that rational part of our brain, but when then we, we, when we get up the next morning, we're using the emotional part of our brain and the emotional part of our brain says, I just want some more sleep, I'm cranky. <laughs> you know, you hit the snooze button. So you, you wanna create a system where you aren't forced to make the choice about using the snooze button. There is in fact this thing called a clocky, where if you hit the snooze button too many times, it's actually, it's, a, it's an alarm clock on wheels and it will run off your side table and you'll have to chase it down. And essentially what you're doing is you're trying to force yourself not to make decisions using the emotional part of your brain. And I think the same thing happens over and over with money, that there are people who are making choices that are going to compromise their long-term goals. It's like the person who chooses the Baconator when they go to the restaurant but you can make decisions ahead of time. You can pack your lunch. You can do whatever it takes to avoid having to 
make a decision where you're you're liable to succumb to temptation. And very often we over-imagine our ability to resist temptation. We see other people succumbing to temptation. We say, oh, that wouldn't be us. But then we do. Um, the, the key is really to avoid situations where we might fall into that trap. One of the things that comes to mind, and this is probably the other side of that coin, but in maybe a bit of a conundrum, when you get into retirement spending and you have had some of these, you know, strong behavioral, uh, smart decision making, perseverance, persistence type, rational brain sort of thinking that has accumulated into more wealth and financial independence, and then you get to the point of retirement and you have way more money than maybe you need to go ahead and meet your goals. And, you know, it comes back down to what you said about economic security and, and really utility. It's like those habits can almost be a double-edged sword because, you know, how do you flip the switch and just start spending at the other side of it? Yeah, we see that we actually have done research on um, workers that we call ants. And the ants are the ones who consistently spend less than their income. And they actually feel a certain amount of satisfaction because they see their wealth growing over time. They get to retirement and all of a sudden they have all this wealth. And you, you might ask them, in fact, I've done interviews with retirees and I asked retirees who are continuing to save money. So into their 70s, they, they had a pretty good nest egg. Um, they're not spending it down. They're very proud of the fact that they're continuing to save money. And so I asked them, well, you must really want to pass on your wealth to your kids. And they say, well, no, you know, they have enough money. We paid for their education. They make more money than we ever did. So uh, that's not our primary goal. And then I sit there and I say, well, there's only two places your money can go in retirement. They can either be used to live better or it can be passed on to someone else. But there's no third choice. So you have to make a conscious decision about how you want to live in retirement and how much you want to pass on. And I think really the first stage of retirement planning is making a conscious decision about how much you want to pass on. That's your one goal. You've only got two goals, right? Lifestyle is your second goal. How much do you actually want to spend? And for the ants, for the ones who have carefully been saving for, I mean, it's the old parable of the grasshopper and the ant, the ants have been careful saving for the winter, they get to the winter, and then they don't feel like actually spending. I think it's a big psychological problem. I mean, it, it's preventing people from living as well as they could live in retirement. And it's, you know, it really, I don't see, especially in the 401k era, where people arrive at retirement with this big pot of money in their IRA. Uh, very often when you follow them over time, especially wealthy retirees, you, you don't see them spending down those assets. And I think especially in a low interest rate, low asset return environment like we're, that we're probably going to experience over the next decade, you're going to have to spend it down. You're going to have to become more accustomed to the idea of seeing that nest egg get smaller if you want to meet your lifestyle goals. But for a lot of people, that's a real challenge. So that makes me think of retirees. And I can think of you know, several that you know I serve personally and as a firm that you know we take care of and and see how things you know change over time. So we have you know more than three hundred clients that we take care of, and you know that's our our small sample. Um, but some of the research that you've done has obviously been you know over a much wider range of of people. And can you talk a little bit about uh, those sorts of surveys and where some of this data comes from and what you've learned about what makes people happy in retirement? 
We use um, a publicly available data set that was um, actually created by the University of Michigan. And, and you know, it's, it's a great disappointment to me being an Ohio State graduate that anything useful can come out of the University of Michigan. But <laughs> we, we use this data set that began in 1994. It's, it's what's known as a longitudinal data set. So it's the same people over time. And we can follow them through retirement and we can see how they end up. Um, and by the way, we, we just did a study on longevity. Don't smoke. The likelihood that you're going to make it to the age of 75 if you're still actively smoking in your 50s is it's maybe you've got a 60% shot of making it to the age of 75. Smoking is one of the worst things that you can do, just as an aside. Um, so we what we do, I mean, we do things like look at longevity. What predicts the likelihood that you're going to be alive at a given, given age? Because we I want to know um, when you're making decisions about how to plan for spending, are you going to be around for more years? Because if you're going to be around for more years, then you probably need to spend a little bit less to make it last longer. Um, but we can look at things like life satisfaction. What, what actually makes people happy in retirement? Uh, we can look at how they spend their money down over time. We can look at how they invest. Uh, we can even look at things like how having a guaranteed income source like you know a, a pension or, or a bigger social security check how that impacts their life satisfaction and their spending um, these are all i you know it's 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 so fascinating when you get into the data because you get to see how people actually live in retirement now there are other sources of data for example uh, chase bank has done some really great research on retiree spending um, so they can use their credit cards and their bank statement to confirm some of the research that we've done using the health and retirement studies. And they tend to match up pretty well. So for some of the um, insights that you've gleaned from the HRS or the Chase study over the years, you mentioned um, some differences between like pension or social security income or maybe even earned income or portfolio income in retirement. Can you elaborate on that? What does the study show? Yeah, so um, when it comes to income in retirement and spending in retirement, what we see is that people spend almost the exact same amount of money the year after they retire as they did before retirement. The other important thing to remember is um, when you're thinking about something like a replacement rate, what is a replacement rate? A rate the play replacement rate is how much of your pre-retirement gross salary you need to replace in terms of lifestyle. And now that we have electronic records, it's a little bit easier for us to estimate what our actual lifestyle spending looks like as a percentage of our gross income. But what we find is that um, you know, for high income families, the, it, the actual lifestyle replacement rate maybe is lower than they might have expected. Um, so it's, it's not 80%. So if you're making $200,000 a year, then you don't have to spend $160,000. Why? Because you may already be saving 20% of your income in your 401k, especially if you're doing catch-ups. Um, you have payroll taxes that you no longer have to pay. And a lot of people who are making more money just naturally save more money. So we found that the replacement rate for high-income Americans is probably closer to about 60% of your gross income, maybe more like $120,000, but it's going to be different for everybody. So it's worth checking your credit card statements, looking at your bank's. Uh, statements to be able to estimate, come up with a closer idea of what your lifestyle is going to look like. So you'll probably continue to spend $120,000 a year after you retire. You're going to live in the same 
house, you're gonna pay the same property tax. Uh, you're you're going to go to the same grocery store. You know, you're, you're gonna shop at the same places. You may go on a few more vacations. Some retirees are gonna go a little bit nuts. They're gonna buy a motorhome or have some other big expenses at the very beginning of retirement. But generally what we see is that those expenses uh, start petering out after a couple of years. And then there is a gradual decline in spending over time. So you tend to spend the most in your late 60s and early 70s. Spending declines at a rapid rate during your mid 70s. And then the rate of decline of spending um, is more modest in your late 80s and 90s, mainly because healthcare expenses are high. But when healthcare expenses are high, very often you're not spending much money on anything else. So uh, there is this gradual decline in after inflation spending and retirement that is really just a natural part of aging so you know there you experience cognitive aging uh, you experience physical aging which means that you're not quite as mobile as as you were in your 60s and 70s and i think it's another reason why retirees really have to become accustomed to this idea of living well in their 60s and 70s because uh, you know, get, it's okay to spend money on things like vacations in your 60s and 70s. That's what you saved all this money for your, during your working life because you may not be as capable of spending that money for the same types of things in your 80s and 90s. So the old saying, go, go, slow, go, and no, go seems to uh, have some validity to it, I suppose. It does. You know, and it's so interesting that if you look at even um, half marathon times uh, by age, what you see is you can be the healthiest person. We all kind of have this feeling that it's not going to happen to us. If we just work hard enough, we're not going to experience this natural aging that occurs over time to a human body. Uh, but the reality is that even the healthiest people in the world experience this same change. And, and you know, it's, it's a physical change. It's a cognitive change. Uh, by the time we're 90, we're not really the same person that we were when we were in our 60s. So you have to be very conscious of the decisions you make to live well. You can't put off that, say, that two-month European vacation until you're in your 80s because you may not enjoy it as much as you could in your 60s. You know, one of the things that you mentioned about uh, the high-income people, so these are traditionally probably more apt to be clients of financial advisors like myself, but in, in, in the study terms, in, in dollar terms, what does high income actually mean? That's a great question. So if you look at incomes in the United States, probably top decile, top 10th percentile is, is somewhere in the range of an income of $100,000 plus. If you're a family now to a lot of clients of financial advisors, they make a lot more than that. So that's going to seem relatively modest. Um, and you know what we see is though that once your income starts creeping into the six digits, that there are a lot of similarities among pre-retirees when they retire. I mean, there is they don't spend on average that much more than someone who made seventy or eighty thousand dollars a year once they retire. That's a real surprise because one of the big questions is why did you save all this money during your working years if not to spend a lot more in retirement? Uh, but they they generally don't. You know, the, the, I, I would include. You know, my mother is a great example of this. Um, she has a pension, fortunately. She feels free to spend her pension every month, her pension income, but a little less comfortable spending down her assets from her IRA. Uh, and that's another phenomenon I notice is that when, when it comes to money that recurs every month, 
that populates your checking account, you know it's never going to run out, and social security is a great example of this. You feel perfectly comfortable spending that money, but people very often don't feel comfortable spending money out of their IRA seeing that balance get smaller. Yeah, in, in pragmatic uh, experience that we have in working with people, um, that is so true. And uh, we'll talk about Social Security a little bit later and claiming strategies, but uh, that's that's <laughs> that's the kind of the um, the double-edged sword, I suppose, that comes out when I think about that. But be before we go there, um, one of the things that um, we started with, you know, your research as a, a food researcher, food consumption researcher, yeah, about the differences in longevity and, you know, having these you know, people living longer. So, you know, similar where you're talking about maybe an average income person versus a high income person. Can you talk about um, really what age should we be planning for when we're thinking about retirement? And maybe what are some of the differences uh, that you see between, say, average and then, you know, above average or high income people in terms of the long life expectancy and longevity? There has really been an amazing trend in the United States over the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, and that is that higher income Americans are now living much longer than lower income Americans. So the biggest gains in longevity are among those higher income Americans. And when you look at some of the reasons for it, um, mainly the gains are coming among men. And the biggest change is that higher income men don't smoke. And that has, they also exercise more, they also eat better, um, they have access to higher quality healthcare. There have been studies that have been done. It's not really the access to healthcare, it's mainly the behavioral differences that are driving this change in longevity. But uh, men in the top 10th percentile of income have gained six years of longevity over the last 20 years. That's, a, that's an amazing phenomenon, but the same thing occurs among women. A lot of people think that you know, women, especially who have gone back into the workforce, um, they're experiencing a lot of the same stresses that men experience in the workplace, so they're not going to live as long. In fact, that, that is the exact opposite of what happens. Women who make more money over the course of their lifetime also live longer, and, and women in the top 10th percentile of income have gained about three years of longevity over the last 20 years. And so I spend a lot of time um, looking at these more, what's known as a mortality table. And the Society of Actuaries, they're the people that insurance companies hire to estimate how long people are going to live based on actual experience uh, among people who buy life insurance and annuities. So we, we, we can look at these tables and estimate the likelihood that, for example, um, one member of a healthy couple is going to live to the age of 95. And in fact, a healthy couple at the age of 65 has pretty close to a 50-50 chance that one of them is going to live beyond the age of 95. Uh, a healthy woman has about a 29% chance that she is going to uh, live to the age of 95. That's remarkable. And it really means that if you're going to be planning for retirement, if you're a healthy couple, it, you have to plan to age 100 at least. Uh, and that means that you have to spread your wealth over, if you retire at 65, over the course of a 35-year time horizon. Um, it may not be the case for someone who is in a lower income bracket, who is less healthy, um, you know, who smokes. You know, th their planning horizon is not going to be as long. But someone who is healthy, they have to plan for the possibility that they're going to live into their 90s. And especially a couple, um, you know, there's there's probably about an 80% chance that one of them is going to live into their 90s. So their planning horizon has to be a lot farther. And by the way, I hear all the time, 
people say, well, my dad only lived to the age of 80 or 75, so I should only plan on living to the age of 75 or 80. Well, imagine the life that your dad had. What sort of choices did he make that are different than the choices that you made over the course of your lifetime? Not to mention the fact that um, if you get diagnosed with cancer, survival rates right now are so much higher than they were 20 years ago. So medicine has changed over the last couple of decades. Your behavior has probably changed. Um, you're a different person. You're more likely to live longer. So you need to plan for a longer time horizon. Um, you know, in, in fact, there's another, there's a question in this health and retirement study where people are asked, what is the likelihood that you're going to live to the age of 75? And they're asked it when they're in their 50s. And then we can actually go and see who among the people who said that there was a 0% chance or a 10% chance, what was the likelihood that they actually made it past the age of 75? And what we see is that it's consistently about, you know, for those people who don't think that there's any chance they're going to make it to the age of 75, about half of them do. So we're, we're really terrible at estimating the likelihood that we're going to live to a certain age. And very often we live longer than we expect. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. You know, when oftentimes when you're sitting down with somebody uh, for the first time, and particularly if they haven't had a direct family member to live to be at, at a later age, um, or if they're dealing with some sort of, you know, we all get our kinds of bumps and bruises and have more, you know, health issues and see the doctor more as, as we age. But if you can't visualize planning for, say, a 30-year retirement or perhaps even longer, and you're planning for a 20-year retirement, I mean, it's just a completely different retirement plan, different spending plan, different investing plan. Getting that right mindset is, well, I mean, it's it's a precondition, I think, to having the likelihood of a good retirement plan. Otherwise, it may just be, I guess there's always a luck factor, but uh, I'd rather try to put the probabilities in my favor as best as I can. So uh, I couldn't agree more. I, I'm just curious with some of the research that you're seeing. Do you have any thoughts about um, longevity looking for maybe COVID aside? I think everybody, most everybody, most rational people, I suppose, um, know that COVID uh, detracted from uh, mortality. But um, presuming that uh, it, it doesn't continue to become a, a persistent issue in that vein, um, you know, I hear some things about, you know, uh, with all the biomedical engineering and, and some of the life expectancy predictions today. I mean, I don't want to say it's scary, but you're, you're having a lot of smart people. And maybe you did 30, 50 years ago too, saying that we're going to live much, much longer where it's not just going to be kind of a linear, uh, sort of uh, accretion to our lifestyle, but maybe even something a little bit more exponential, if you will. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I first of all, that's not outside my area of expertise. I read David Sinclair's book. Uh, I, I, you know, there, I know there is a chance that medical science is going to come up with um, a regimen that's going to allow people to live a lot longer. That's going to, you know, reduce the rate of aging or even halt it. Um, what we've seen over the 20th century is this very consistent, predictable improvement in average longevity in the United States of about a year every decade. So um, I think that's reasonable to expect in the 21st century. Now, you know, a pandemic is going to have a big impact on that. We already know that average longevity in the United States suffered considerably because of COVID. Um, if you look at the experience of insurance companies that have group insurance policies, you see that mortality rates have spiked. Uh, as much as 20% during the pandemic. So that's going to have an impact on longevity. Now, if you made it through the pandemic, you're going to live 
longer than the average American because the pandemic very often took the lives of people who were probably not going to live as long on average. They were a little bit less healthy on average again. Um, so what, what you can expect is that you're going to live longer than the average American if you're in retirement right now. And nobody knows what improvements in longevity are going to look like, but we can also expect these regular improvements of about a year every decade. So where it really becomes important is that today's retiree should expect to live longer than a retiree from 20 years ago. And if you're younger, you can continue to expect that there's going to be those mortality improvements which means that you're probably gonna to need to either save a little bit more or you're going to need to retire at an older age uh, if you wanna fund the same number of years of spending in retirement. So uh, a millennial today may expect to live four years longer than a retiree who's in the boomer cohort. Anytime I, we talk about life expectancy or longevity, um, Social Security always comes to mind. And we've, we've spoken about Social Security in different fashions, um, quite a bit uh, over time with clients and with uh, on the podcast, and certainly have been an early adopter of different social security deferral strategies and claiming strategies in general, um, you know, at our firm. But um, I guess said in a very plain way, why is social security such a good deal? Well, um, first of all, it is the only inflation protected annuity that exists right now. So let's let's unpack that. First of all, what does what inflation protected mean? It means that your social security income is going to rise uh, by the average rate of inflation. So if inflation goes up 7%, which it just did, um, your, your, your check, your social security payment is going to go up by 7%. That's really valuable. It's great to have a source of income that's going to rise when the prices of goods and services also goes up. The other aspect of social security is that it was designed to be actuarially fair. What does that mean? That means that the government can expect to pay out the same amount of money, whether you claim at age 62 or age 64 or age 66 or 70, but that was based on numbers in the early 1980s. And in the early 1980s, the average rate of return on government inflation protected bonds was higher than it is today. Um, and also people were expected to live long, well, not live as long in the early 1980s as they live today. And consequently, the gain that you get from delaying social security from age 65 to age 70 is more than actuarially fair. What does that mean? That means that you can expect to get back with interest more money if you delay claiming for an additional year. It means that you have more wealth to spend in retirement if you delay claiming Social Security. So you're doing the right thing by encouraging clients, especially healthy clients, to delay Social Security because essentially what they're doing is they're buying a higher income every year in retirement that is adjusted for inflation. Um, you also have to remember that getting an extra you know, $2,000 a year from Social Security is a lot more valuable than just getting $2,000 a year in what's known as non-inflation protected income. So a pension that is not inflation protected that pays you $30,000 a year is less valuable than a social security income that pays $30,000 at the beginning of retirement because that income is going to rise every year by the rate of inflation in retirement. 
Uh, a lot of people think that their pension income is comparable to their social security. It's not. Social security is more valuable. Other people think the government is going to go bankrupt uh, and not be able to make those social security, promise social security payments. Now, anybody who understands politics recognizes that uh, people are going to get very upset if in the year 2033 or 2034, the government just cuts everybody's social security payment by 22%. Uh, that's not going to happen. So there's going to be some sort of a fix. And by the way, even if the social security system goes bankrupt, the worst possible outcome is everybody's income gets cut by about 20%. That's the worst possible outcome. That's not going to happen. What is going to happen is that we're going to see some combination of increases in payroll taxes, especially people who make more money are going to have to pay more into the social security system. We're probably going to see continued um, the delays of a full retirement age, it's currently 67 for someone who was born in 1960. Uh, it's probably going to rise over time. We may also see that that inflation adjustment is maybe recalculated so that there is what's known as a chained CPI, which recognizes the fact that the Social Security recipients can be a little bit flexible when it comes to how they spend money in retirement. So if beef goes up by 30%, like it just did over the last year, they can switch to chicken, um, which only went up by about 9% over the last year. So that's what's known as a chain CPI that's probably going to get implemented as part of the solution. Um, but the bottom line is that that social security income is incredibly valuable and it's going to continue to be incredibly valuable. So you have to pay attention to whether it makes sense to delay your claiming. And for any healthy person in the United States, it makes sense right now. That's great. And the chain CPI, um, I like to remind people, it did already make its way into the tax code in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So, and I, I don't know about you, but anytime you can make a change mathematically, something that is um, less salient that people may not understand so clearly, it's probably easier and more palatable for Congress to do than something that's a, a direct increase in somebody's taxes. These indirect sort of ways uh, seems just to be more palatable, but, um, but I suppose I digress there. One of the things that you said when you were explaining Social Security and, and in practice, I find is very, it's often a stumbling block for people to, to get over. Usually we're successful in getting over it, but nonetheless, it, it, it's there, is when you talked about the Social Security deferral, um, one of the key phrases I think you said was, you know, it's every year you have a higher income. So what I find in practice is a lot of times when we're talking about the Social Security claiming strategy, and maybe we're looking at deferring one or both benefits, uh, if there's a couple, they think that they have to wait later to spend the money, that they can't spend the money now. Um, and you kind of have to unpack that and walk them through and show that's not the case. But I think it it maybe even gets back to some of the um, conclusions, uh, observations that you see in the HRS study where, you know, people, it's easier and they like spending the Social Security or the pension income rather than the portfolio income. And we have to get them over that stumbling block to say, no, you know, you can spend more money now. Um, because of the uh, actuarially um, unfair, I suppose, benefits of Social Security and and the fact that, you know, how it works and when it was priced back in the 80s. Um, so I, that's quick aside anyway. It's something that I would say probably seven times out of 10 we run into. Social Security planning seems to have gotten a lot easier over the years that now that there is more education out there, at least among the people that we work with. But um yeah, we completely agree, particularly uh, if somebody, 
is a more of a what I will call qualitatively a conservative investor. Um, if they do prefer more fixed income type assets that are low yielding and actually have returned negative returns over you know the last several months as interest rates have risen, for those people, I, I would we, we we tend to push even more so on the Social Security deferral because arguably their opportunity costs um, is is much less. So when I think about um, Social Security as well uh, and the inflation-adjusted component, and, and I didn't realize that you can't buy an inflation-adjusted annuity anymore. So apparently they weren't big sellers. Um, so the insurance companies got rid of them or they didn't like the risk. But inflation has been uh, really a hot topic, I would say, for the last you know several months. Um, you know, candidly, I mean, I think I and, and most people you know thought it was going to be more of a um, what was the Fed term? A transient issue, but it certainly it's persisted and been higher and been exacerbated by the whole, uh, you know, Russian issue with Ukraine and some of the energy prices. Um, but what's going on with inflation? Whatever, what are you seeing recently? Inflation, um, you know, normally when you go through these periods of very high inflation, you, you see a little bit more uniformity than you do over the last year in the United States. What we see is that some categories of spending have gone up a lot. So uh, as, as you mentioned, gasoline has gone up a lot. Also, the price of cars has gone up a lot. Red meat has gone up a lot. It's I've, I've called it manflation. So over the last year, um, <laughs> everything that men love has gone up in price by this huge amount. Now, part of the reason is because people have just returned to work after the pandemic. And that's that's going to obviously have an impact on demand for things like cars, and especially if there's supply chain issues, you're going to end up with really high prices and gasoline. Um, there's also been supply chain issues that have hit some industries more than others. So as I mentioned before, if you, um, you know, you, you see much higher price increases for red meat than you do for chicken, for whatever reason. Um, and for, for seniors, price increases have actually not been that bad. If you look at drug prices or healthcare in general, it really hasn't gone up over the last year. So you, you haven't seen the, that big increase in the costs of a lot of things that seniors spend a bigger share of their budget on. Now, seniors can also be more flexible. So they can, if gas prices go up, they can just not drive as much. Uh, whereas someone who has to go to work, they have to spend money on gas. So they're stuck with that high rate of inflation on um, what they spend money on. But for, for a lot of seniors, they can be a little bit more flexible. And that's part of that whole chain CPI conver conversation is that if you're a retiree, you can respond actively to changes in prices in different consumer goods. Now, nobody knows if this is going to continue, if this is just a transitory phenomenon, or if we're going to continue to see high rates of inflation over the next few years. I think we can be reasonably certain that those supply chain issues are not going to work themselves out in the next year or so. Um, you know, as you mentioned, that the conflict has also contributed to those. So you know, we have to be conscious of what we're spending money on, but we also have to not overreact. We see things like you mentioned this idea of saliency. Things like gas prices are highly salient. When we go to the gas station, we pay seventy-five bucks to to fill up our our tank. It hurts. 
But, you know, we can go out to dinner the next night and spend $100 on dinner, $20 of which is a tip, and not, not bat an eye, not think about it as much, maybe because it's, it's somewhat less salient. Or, um, you know, another category may be flat and we don't really notice it, even though healthcare is a big share of our budget and retirement. So we have to be also cautious about some of these behavioral aspects that we, owe, we pay too much attention to things like gas prices, not enough attention to how much we're spending in our overall budget. And that can cause us to cut back on spending when we really don't have to. So when you're, we're constructing a retirement plan for somebody, we, we have to make uh, assumptions. We have to make assumptions. Um, hopefully we're measuring, we're making assumptions on spending, but then we're measuring it. You know, we have to play, pick some age for the income, you know, to last. And, and certainly rule number one of retirement planning is to have your money last at least a little bit longer than you do. Or I suppose if you could bounce your last check, that might be optimal. Um, but when you think about some of these expectations uh, that need to be fed into a retirement plan, as it relates to inflation, I mean, in your opinion, what's a good way about going to do that? How do you form inflation expectations? Let's talk about how inflation has, um, how high inflation has been historically. Um, we, over the last 20 years or so in the United States, we've gotten really lucky. Inflation has been very low. We've gotten to the point now where we started just incorporating a 2% inflation rate when we were doing our simulations. But if you go back a little farther into the 90s and 80s and 70s in the United States, what you see is that retirees faced a real significant risk that uh, the purchasing power of their income could fall significantly. And, you know, maybe someone who retired in the mid 1960s, they had a $20,000 pension in today's terms. It may have only been worth $6,000 in terms of purchasing power 20 years later. Whereas someone who maybe retired in the year 2000 saw that $20,000 go to maybe $14,000 of purchasing power after 20 years. So that purchasing power is what we want to preserve in retirement. Now, the good news is that by the time you get to your mid 80s, you're not spending quite as much. A lot of it is on healthcare, So it's on a very, very limited category of expenses. But we also see that riskier assets tend to perform better over long term time horizons. So one way of dealing with that risk is uh, using something like uh, a, a strategy where you time segment your investments so that you, you start thinking of uh, riskier investments as something that you're not going to touch for another 15 or 20 or 25 years. Um, you, you take a little bit more investment risk that allows you to at least it doesn't ensure that your investments are going to keep up with inflation, but it gives them a higher probability that they're going to keep up with inflation later on in retirement. Um, but the best way to deal, especially with near-term inflation, is to delay Social Security because that is going to be that foundation of spending that's also going to adjust for inflation over time. So the two best responses are delay claiming Social Security as a way of dealing with that variability of inflation, which you do not know. It is a source of risk at the beginning of retirement, just like investment risk. A lot of people don't see inflation risk as being comparable to investment risk, but it is exactly the same thing. Investment risk is if you get unlucky, you will, your lifestyle is going to be negatively affected. The same thing happens with inflation risk. If you get unlucky and inflation is high, that is going to affect your standard of living later on in retirement. So you can do things to protect yourself against both of those risks. 
Hey, this is Walter Storholt jumping in for a second here to say a big thank you to Dr. Michael Finca for joining Kevin Krosky on today's edition of Retire Smarter. The guys had an in-depth and long conversation, so we've decided to break it into two parts. So this will conclude part one of the conversation, but have no fear. Uh, episode number 98, the next one on the docket, will pick right back up and continue with part two of this interview series with Dr. Michael Finca. If you've got any questions about something that you heard on today's episode, don't ever hesitate to reach out to Kevin, talk through those things, whatever it might be that's on your mind as it relates to retirement and your financial future. You can give him a call at 855-TWD-PLAN, 855-893-7526, or you can go to truewealthdesign.com, and you can actually schedule a 15-minute call with an experienced advisor on the True Wealth team by just clicking on the Are We Right For You button. And again, that's at truewealthdesign.com or by calling that number 855-TWD-PLAN. Hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Again, we'll pick right back up with part two on the very next edition of Retire Smarter. Thanks for tuning in. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.